Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Doors of Portland. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving West Portland out to Hillsboro, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. All right, listeners, uh, this is Nick Perlosky doing the intro today, uh, and I get the wonderful privilege of doing this because today our guest is uh, PPS board chair Ailey Lowry, and she has been kind enough to sit down with us even after James and I just broke some of her lights, <laughs> which is a fantastic way to make an introduction. James broke the lights. Nick, Nick did not. <laughs> I was going to throw myself under the bus there, but you know, it is what it is. True. We, we only speak the truth to you, listeners. Um, but uh, Ailey actually officiated I and my wife's wedding. So we, we've known each other for two years in a, in a love and you know religious context and now we get to talk to you in a podcast and education context yeah and i was fortunate enough to know your wife for many years yeah uh, exactly. she's everybody pretty, should be so lucky pretty yeah. special lady so i'm she, glad I, you found each other because yeah, it's pretty marvelous <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i assume you all met through the, the school system yes we did my daughter was in his wife's class in fifth grade but before that uh, starting in third grade i was sort of the go-to extra parent so there was a time when all of the parents for the the fifth grade class, were not able to come on a field trip. So his wife asked me to grab my mud boots uh, and come to the Oaks Bottom and do some uh, playing in the mud with a bunch of fifth graders. So I showed up <laughs> and did that because she wasn't about to take 25 of them by herself down there. So Sounds <laughs> reasonable. Bless yeah. your heart for that. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And I got to spend time with your wife, who's wonderful. So. I, I will agree with that. She brought us, she got us this wine today. Yeah, so. it's a great well, wine. <laughs> life is good. Well, so I can I ask, how did you, how did did you decide to get involved with PPS in the first place? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I was an AmeriCorps member right after grad school. So I went to grad school for, to, for seminary to be a pastor, and then I really felt like I needed to give back. I got a full ride scholarship to grad school. I'd had wonderful public education, a great experience at the University of Arizona. Um, they beat the Beavers that year when I was a senior in football, which is Go always next. great. I'm wearing my beaver mask as we sat down to this, so that's <laughs> rough day for Nick. <laughs> yeah. At least you didn't break the lights. <laughs> That'd be a really rough day. Uh, so I ended up doing Washington Reading Corps and was involved uh, in school systems in Yakima Valley, uh, Washington, helping with reading tutoring. And then um, after I did a year of service, I was actually hired to be the director of AmeriCorps for Yakima County. So spent three years running AmeriCorps programs in the county Success by Six, Washington Reading Corps, and then Washington Service Corps, which focused on at-risk youth in middle school and high school. And then we also had a construction team that built new homes. Okay. That really helped me love even more public education. And so um, when our daughter was in kindergarten, I decided to give one day a week to the local elementary school. I had Fridays as my day off, so I spent Friday at the school. I spent about two hours in her kindergarten class and then an hour in third grade math. Um, because I'm not afraid of math. I like math. And it's a lot easier to get reading tutors than math tutors. I ended up 
doing that and did that for the three years we lived in Benita. And then when we moved up to Portland, again, was volunteering in the schools. Like I said, going on, you know, field trips to Oaks Bottom mm-hmm. with kids and um, got involved also in PTA and with the local school foundation and in leadership. And then I realized that in Venita, we were serving high poverty kids, mm-hmm. um, kids from families that were struggling more than here in this affluent Selwood neighborhood. Um, and I wanted to, to serve the district in a wider way. So I asked the principal at Llewellyn how I could do that. And he connected me with the Citizens Budget Review Committee. So I spent two years uh, reviewing the budget for PPS and giving input on that. Um, and I then sit on that for Multnomah County and I, <laughs> it's, it is yeoman's work. Well, it's very important, but <laughs> you bring some like strong coffee or something with you when you go. Yeah. I'm used to the nonprofit world and the church world where like, you know, our big budget's 150,000. <laughs> and so, you know, suddenly I'm looking at a 500 million, uh, budget with, you know, another billion sort of in other funds. And it's, it's, they are almost not real numbers sometimes. <laughs> I had kind of the opposite experience. I went from Intel where I was looking at, multi-billion dollar budgets and then to my HOA board where our annual bu- <laughs> where like 500 bucks was a big expense whereas yeah. you know at, at Intel like it was you know you're off by like two million dollars and you're like eh, it's just a rounding error don't worry about it yeah it's <laughs> so, it's really startling when you kind of switch between those big mm-hmm. degrees of, of numbers um, so then I ended up on the principal interview team uh, because that we were looking for a new principal at Selwood Middle School and I I was the, there were two parents that showed up to the informational meeting about the kind of principal we wanted at Selwood and talking to the person from HR. They're like, would you like to serve on this committee? Uh, <laughs> Y'all and, are I, it. and I found out, you know, there's so many doors that open when you show up and you're prepared and you care. Um, and I think, you know, for me, one of the interesting things about democracy is it's messy and it's hard, but it takes showing up and being willing to be in the game. Um, we, we literally ended our last podcast by saying mm-hmm. that exact same yeah. thing is government can be this very nebulous, very difficult to understand, very red tapey, whatever you want it to be. But if you actually sit down at a meeting somewhere, especially if it's not, you know, something about the United States Senate the next time Jeff Merkley comes to town or whatever, if it's a local issue, there might be two people that show up and the amount of decisions that you can make is tremendous. Yeah. And that's, I've, now that I've, so I ran for school board because I also started getting involved with Portland Friends of Music as a music advocate because of the way, uh, music was sort of, um, getting pushed out of middle school. And I started advocating for my kid. And then I started hearing stories from other families about how transformational music was in the lives of their students, especially struggling students. And so I was the spokesperson and I started working with some of the senior leadership of the district. And I was like, Oh, they kind of need me. You know, not not in an arrogant way, but there's not a lot of, I mean, I think sometimes there's a lot of people who it's about making a name or, you know, they're interested in longer term public service. And for me, it's really about how can I best serve kids? Um, and I think being a pastor, that's my day job, uh, is, you know, helps me to listen and to sort of stand in this like more neutral place often um, and try to see the good in everybody. Uh, even when I disagree. And I think that helps me as a board member um, to show up kind of with love and grace and try to, you know, emulate that as much as I can in all the settings. So I, that's I ran because I felt well um, led to do so. But I also think it's this whole life of really valuing public education and how it was transformational for me and gave me tons of opportunities and wanting to pay that back so that other students have those same kind of opportunities to really make the world a better place for us all. Well, and I can say you're 
you got to be very good at seeing the good in people because you you were able to perform the wedding with me and Madeline and it took two hours of us sitting and talking beforehand but eventually you saw some good in me eventually you <laughs> gave the okay for me to marry Madeline the so. best part is you showed up before she did so I had you alone for like 20 <laughs> minutes to really cross-examine you the without her there I was gonna be late on something yeah it was great <laughs> that, it took a long time that day but there's enough in my my little rational Republican heart that she says okay all right we can do this yeah the way you made her smile really told me that you were a kind man despite your pretending otherwise <laughs> well i will that- say i am almost a product of pps i did kindergarten through second grade before we moved to bend and my my now wife of two weeks um congratulations is, uh, thank you thank you uh she graduated from from madison i believe she's gonna kick me for forgetting that but madison high school yeah yeah stuff stuff you should probably know about your wife like, <laughs> portland public schools she's she's good pretty sure it's madison anyway oh my God. so i'm a i'm a product of salem kaiser oh uh, okay, okay okay those people yeah <laughs> well why don't we get into the nuts and bolts of questions i'm curious uh nick typed out some stuff here which i'm going to ignore um <laughs> Sounds wise. just like madeline yeah <laughs> well we have we're in the middle of covid right now and there's discussion of go, what do we do in the fall? And I believe, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe PPS is trying to do four days a week, like Monday, Tuesday, and then Thursday, Friday. Is that correct? Wow. And with different, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm yes. you know better than me. So the latest plan that has been released to families is that um, kids will be split into two cohorts, cohort mm-hmm. A and cohort B creative names mm-hmm. um, and that cohort a will be in class on mondays and tuesdays and then cohort b will be in class on thursdays and fridays and that allows for some deep cleaning to happen on wednesdays professional development for teachers and that on the two days or three days that students aren't at school in the physical building they'll have um, asynchronous learning opportunities so different activities they can do online so for littler kids things like seesaw which is you know software that a lot of our students use in school already um, and then for older students like my daughter who's a will be a sophomore at cleveland they'll have projects and activities uh, essays to write and those kinds of things um, videos to watch um, so that'll be what that's the plan at this point but i can tell you that pps has said over and over again that we will not do the hybrid learning model unless it is safe to do so um, and so right now we're, we're planning September 14th. Um, but I, that I think could change, um, based on, you know, if our numbers of COVID cases continue to climb and the governor, um, continues to say, you know, um, sure. it's not safe, then I think, um, the schools will push back the start date and do all online until it is safe. Um, and I, you know, you're married to a teacher, Nick. So I think you've heard probably some of the conversation about, you know, uh, for teachers, sick leave and what does it mean and the risk they're at as well. Um, so we, we want to make sure that all teachers and students are safe. Well, and that's, I mean, that's honestly, that's 100% accurate. And I, we think of, you know, the, the heroes, the first responders, you know, nurses, doctors, you know, people on the front lines on this, a, a lot of agricultural workers, construction workers, all kinds of people that you still have to go out and keep doing your job, even when there's not ways to be six feet apart or not ways to deal with a mask on or whatever. But it, it certainly is, I, I feel like I'm, I'm somewhat able to speak for Madeline, though she's far more eloquent than I am, uh, that, you know, that's, that's obviously concern is to be around 15 or 20 other people 
on any given day, uh, Mondays, Tuesdays, and then Thursdays, Fridays, and you're not certain who they've been around or, uh, you know, what infections they might have or whatever that, you know, she certainly wants to stay safe. But at the same time, she loves her kids. And I'm sure she yeah. would say the same thing about all of the rest of the teachers at Llewellyn at all the schools here in PPS. And it's so, it's going to be so different for them to finish the year last year online versus start a year this year and have to build relationships with new individuals when they, I mean, everybody knows the up and gun, obviously not the kindergarten teachers, but she's a fourth grade teacher. She knows the, who her kids are and everything, but it's, you, you don't have that opportunity to build a relationship as you would in a classroom or build a classroom culture. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, there is, I don't know, maybe this is my, just my perception, but it feels like there's been some reluctance among uh, state leaders to embrace the online learning model. I think a lot of it has to do with access to high-speed internet or those sort of things. Is this just sort of like COVID is more important than than those other issues? Or what's what's kind of the thought process or discussion around going to a model like that? I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's so there are some students in the spring that we did not hear from. So when March 13th happened, and that was the last day of school, there are some students that the teachers never were able to get in touch with. So we know we have students who um, families may have traveled for different reasons or aren't in the area. And so that's worrying, you know, because as Nick said, you know, teachers like Madeline, they love their kids, they care for them. Um, and, and so that's a hard piece. But we also know we have students who are, they might have access, but, you know, if you have three kids and one computer um, rotating through the times and if they're all supposed to be on at a certain time, how do you navigate that? If you're working in some of those frontline jobs, how are you also managing, especially younger children? Um, so I think part of the tension is around we know that what's best for students is to be in person in their schools. Um, we know that students need the supports that schools offer. And so we want to be able to do that. And it's holding intention. You know, the best thing for students would be to return to class in the fall. Mm-hmm. And it may not be the safe thing. And so it's balancing that of we know we have lots of kids who are slipping through the cracks. We know we have kids who are behind. We know we have kids who this is a daunting challenge for. And so we want to do the best for those students. Um, but we also can't then irresponsibly just be like, okay, school's open. It's, <laughs> it's weighing the right. tension of this pandemic we have that we still don't know the long-term effects or, um, and the latest I've heard is that and again, science is always changing and refining, but the kids 10 and up pass COVID just like adults do. Hmm. And so the littler, the littles might be less able to transmit. But when we start getting into like fourth grade and above, um, so how do we keep kids and teachers safe? How do we do the best we can given the public health crisis? And so I think there's a hesitancy to say we're just going to go to online because we know the cost that it'll have for hundreds of our students to say that. Can I ask, uh, somewhat tangentially related to that, I, you referenced March 13th, which was, which ended up being the final in-person day, uh, for, for school last year. Uh, at the time, it was, that was just a week before spring break, and it was billed as, we are just going to precautionarily take an extra week off between now and spring break. You'll have your spring break, and then we'll go back after that. And there wasn't a decision made as to, we will be home full time until well after that. Do you, uh, in your opinion, I honest, I don't think even an epidemiologist could tell us the right answer, or the wrong answer. But in your opinion, would you rather see the district be more nimble and reevaluate these things on a two or a three week basis, you know, at each individual clip? Or would you just rather them say, as we approach the start of the school year, we anticipate 
an increase in cases into the fall, we are going to go online completely this fall and we're going to reevaluate come January. Yeah, I think that, you know, the school year is broken up into quarters. So what ended up happening in March was that they said, okay, we're going to, we've taken these two extra weeks. We're going to come back now online and finish up quarter three. And then all of quarter four is going to be online. So that's kind of the way the decision making happened. You know, I, I am not the governor. I'm not on ODE. And it's really the superintendent and his staff who make the operational decisions. But I could see us saying first quarter is going to be all online. We'll, we'll reevaluate for second quarter, which starts in November. So I could see something like that happen. You know, what they've said now is school starts September 1st, but we're going to do the first two weeks are going to be teachers connecting individually with students, setting up classroom cultures, doing professional development, and then school actually begins for students September 14th. Okay. So that's what's the state, the, the reason now, but I think you know, as we look at, I don't think it'll be two or three weeks because I think that's really hard for teachers and families to plan. Mm-hmm. But I do think it could be, you know, On the a quarter and... system okay. um, or something like that. Okay. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, you you would just mentioned Guadalupe Guerrero, the the superintendent of PPS. And, uh, I'd be curious to get some of your thoughts on him because I know he's, he's now been in the job for three years, I want to say. And, uh, he has, I, I know he had a really innovative idea with the teacher furloughs, which I'd love to get your idea on, you know, the teachers taking the one day a week off towards the end of last year in hopes of averting a, an anticipated budget shortfall as we come up into the next budget cycle. Uh, but also just his, uh, stewardship of, what has what has truly been an unprecedented crisis and i mean i president trump governor brown mayor wheeler every single person at every single level is working without a net on this one nobody has a playbook so nobody has anything really to reference and i'd just be curious for your thoughts as to how he's kind of overall handled this situation and what your relationship has been like with him over the past six months my snarky comment is that trump threw out obama's playbook but we can talk about that <laughs> later um so Guadalupe Guerrero uh, has been here, like you said, for three years, and um, I think he is an outstanding educational leader. His understanding of what students need and his vision of how to get us to be more rigorous um, and bring students who have been marginalized and underserved for so long um, forward is incredible. Um, He definitely you know, this is his first superintendent gig. He's been an assistant and deputy superintendent at a lot of other places in Boston and in San Francisco, and has done incredible work in those places. Um, and I think, you know, anytime you're suddenly, you're, well, not suddenly, but he's worked really hard to get here, but you're now the, the guy in charge. That there's a learning curve to that. And he, you know, has continued to learn how to connect with Portland, how to be a communicator with the city. Um, after we took the Rosa Parks vote in February, where we voted to take Rosa Parks off the year-round calendar and put it back to a regular calendar, which was very disappointing to that community, Guadalupe gave an incredible speech about his own journey as a Hispanic man um, and talked about his vision of educational excellence for all of our students. And it was very inspiring. And I see him living that out, um, being really clear about um, black and indigenous students is the focus and this idea of targeted universalism and living that out in all of the decision making that happens at the district. Um, and he is definitely someone who, when I talk to him about this crisis, he always sees the opportunity, you know, that kind of trite saying about the Chinese characters for crisis and opportunity. He, mm-hmm. he again lives that. Okay. Um, and is able, you know, he, 
he talked about, okay, this has helped us see all the gaps in our technology as a district. Mm -hmm. So how do we take this as a learning moment and do better? Um, and that he's never sits in the, well, this is hard. It's always, okay, what are we learning from this moment and how do we move forward? Um, and so I think, you know, this, I am so thankful we have a leader like that in this crisis who isn't, you know, saying, woe is me or getting bogged down in how hard it is, but is saying, what can we learn? How can we keep moving forward? And how do we keep, especially our black and indigenous students at the forethought of all of our decisions mm -hmm. so that we can be bringing up the whole district and closing the achievement gaps we have? Okay. Well, and I, especially now, I mean, we're obviously, coronavirus was the start of everything going crazy, but uh, 57 nights ago in Portland, George Floyd protests start after, uh, obviously, listeners, you all know, uh, a black man in Minneapolis was killed, was murdered by police officers, and there have been protests across the country, and now race relations have been absolutely thrust into the forefront, and especially in a state like Oregon, especially in a city like Portland that is predominantly white, that has had uh, an incredible amount of racist history on its own, I have to imagine a focus on those issues coming into something like this, into these George Floyd protests, has has got to really set you guys up for being able to. I I hate to I hate to use this phrase because I don't want to sound like it's a good thing, but to take advantage of some of the different changes that are going to come from hopefully from a policy perspective from all of the the civil unrest that we've been witnessing. One of the amazing things is that we will be referring a bond to voters for the November election. And as part of that, there will be a $60 million line item for a Center for Black Excellence. And working with um, the Albina um, Vision Trust and the Historic Neighborhood to think about how can we do innovative and creative things that really center the black student experience. And that those were already percolating before these things happened. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, again, very proud to be part of a district that is having these conversations. We have a lot to prove. I mean, PPS, like many other institutions, has said a lot of the right things over the years, but it's living that out. And I really think the, the bond, redoing Jefferson High School and some of the investments we're making are the beginning of living that out. Can I see uh, outside of new buildings, new, I, I think there's been some new curriculum. If there's anything that you are hoping for in a, um, <laughs> we can just, we can cut this out. <laughs> yeah, we, we can try this again. The Max, Max the cat found himself in a spot of trouble back there. So we <laughs> had to go save him. Brief, brief, <laughs> brief pause there. Um, Sorry. <laughs> had to liberate the cat from his own entanglements. <laughs> uh, once again, Madeline often have to, has to do that the same for me. Um, but there are, there's a lot of, uh, emphasis being placed on the inputs going on. Uh, you, you mentioned a, a Center for Black Excellence. I know there's been some curriculum changes uh, regarding the some of the, the native populations uh, that PPS is able to study. What are some of the outcomes you're hoping to see from uh, from students of various levels or from the district as a whole? Yeah, so one, one thing that will be in the bond also is curriculum, and that will be curriculum that um, increases sort of historic and cultural studies. Um, some of our curriculum is like 30 years old hmm. and has some gaps. So uh, <laughs> some of the bond money will help to fill in those gaps so that all students will have access to really high quality curriculum. The outcomes we're hoping for, the four goals that the school board set this last year are around third grade reading, fifth grade math, high school readiness, and post-secondary readiness. Mm -hmm. And so we want to see 
growth in our third grade reading. You know, we'd love for our, we want, we are going to have all kids on grade level. And what we're looking at is growth. So we want to show that every child is growing at least a year's worth of growth. Okay. Um, and mm-hmm. for students who have been historically behind, that they're growing more than a year's worth of growth. So um, we have this amazing um, statistician as part of PPS, Dr. Russ Brown, who um, kind of looked at all of our numbers and helped us look at what can we really laser focus in on to show us that we're, we are closing the achievement gap. And so we have numbers around, you know, 42% of our um, kids are making a year's worth of growth um, who are black and indigenous. These are not the right numbers. Maybe sure. it's like 20%. Right. And next year we want it to be 25%. Okay. And then the next year it's going to be this much more percent. So that's, that's for math. And then in fifth grade and reading in third grade, um, I've always known that third grade is the time when you change from learning to read to reading to learn. Mm. So you spend kindergarten, first and second grade learning how to read. And then starting in third grade, you're using reading as a tool to get information. The same is true in fifth grade math. If you can understand the concepts in fifth grade math around percents and division, that sets you up for the higher level math you'll end up with in middle school and high school. So if students are on target in fifth grade math. That means they're, they're ready. For eighth grade, we want to do a portfolio. And have students submit a portfolio showing their work. We aren't there yet. We're doing a middle school redesign. So our placeholder goal is the SBAC, the um, Smarter Balance Achievement Test or the um, Common Core Test. And that um, we want to see a certain percentage, again, of black and indigenous students passing that and being proficient. And that every year there's going to be a growth in the percentage that do. But again, we'll get to the portfolio eventually. And then for post-secondary readiness, we, we want to see students getting a C or above in a track. So whether that's AP or uh, IB, the International Baccalaureate, or a, a CTE or arts pathway um, that shows that students sort of have a plan and are prepared for what might happen after high school. And again, we're focusing on the numbers of Black and Indigenous students and really trying to invest to make sure those students are growing in the percentages because that will indicate you know, a, a change in our school system that has had these huge achievement gaps. So okay. those are the the goals. And that's what the outcomes, the investments we're making in the curriculum and in the buildings with staffing are all to meet those four goals. Wonderful. I I can say I did IB in high school. And my joke was, if you could spell the word baccalaureate, you were smart <laughs> enough to be in IB. <laughs> all right, well, spell it. B-A-C-C-A-L-A-U-R-E-A-T-E. We'll have to check that later. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody's going to check me on that one. (laughs) It's recorded. We can go back. Um, So I'm curious, uh, what, if you can get a little more, maybe just get a little more specific about the methods you're using to, to close the achievement gap. I know we're talking about a black center of excellence. Is that going to give extra attention to black students or is it like just black culture? Um, What, what exactly would go into that? So the sweet thing about being a school board member is it's not my job to do the doing. Okay. It's my job to listen to the community, to set the vision, to approve the budget, to create the policies. And it's the superintendent's job to put all the things in place to meet the goals. Got it. So the Center for Black Excellence is really this partnership with the Albina neighborhood around looking at, you know, Jefferson, looking at the BESC building site, looking at some other options and saying, how do we build student-centered places in the community? What does it look like to invest in the black community in Portland around schools and around access for students to supports? 
And so that's all still very new as we're talking to them about what that could look like. Okay. Um, but it's all then in line with what are our goals and how are we getting there? Um, so, you know, it's, the superintendent will be the one recommending the curriculum, not the board. That Got it. It's it, one of the funny things about being on school board is a lot of people run because they're mad about something and they want to fix it. Hmm. And you get on school board and then you realize that that's not your job. Mm-hmm. That, that really the operations, the day to day, the management of the district is all the superintendent and his staff. And our job is governance. And we don't have a really good understanding as people of what governance is. And so this idea of the, the vision setters, the policymakers, the, the supervisors and employers of the superintendent, but not the ones that decide, you know, we get emails all the time, we need another teacher at our school. That's not sure. something we do as board members. Mm-hmm. We set can, priorities more than... We can set priorities yeah. and then it's up to the superintendent and his staff to assign the teachers to select the principals um, to decide if music's going to be in middle school. So I sure as heck, you know, uh, want us to prioritize music. But you'll notice that the four goals I lifted up, even though I got started with Portland Friends of Music as an advocate, music isn't there. Um, and our, our job on school board isn't to be advocates for our own passions. It's to govern and it's to to try to, you know, lead for all students and not just the things that we think are best, but to really, as the seven of us, kind of negotiate together and find a vision for all of Portland with community input. And we have a really great vision document, Reimagining PPS, that was this long community process of when someone graduates from PPS, what are they like? So it has these nine traits of a graduate. Hmm. And so that's our sort of North Star as we say, how do we help get there? And these four board goals are part of how we see getting there, that, that kids can read, they can do math, they're ready for high school, and then they're ready for the world. Interesting. I have, as as a uh, candidate for state rep, um, education is one but of the for James. things that. But for James, uh, <laughs> one of the things that I can see definitely needs work. Um, we high school graduation rate in particular, uh, the achievement gap, things, that, but that are that need government focus, um, but not having any kids and not being involved in the schools really has been it's been tricky for me to come up with on my own, like the nuts and bolts of how do, how do we get there? I can see the need for it, but I'm having a harder time coming up with like, oh, well, these are going to be the legislative priorities that I would, that I would push for. And, uh, I had a interview with, um, Stanford children, one of mm-hmm. the, and about getting an endorsement and they decided not to endorse me, which is fine. Oh, I'm in a very, on, guys. I'm in a very Jimmy underwater B. district. I would be, I would be very <laughs> dis- surprised if anyone outside of like maybe Timber Unity gave me an endorsement, but, but um, they have not endorsed me, by the way, Timber Unity. I'm working on it. But uh, definitely got me thinking about and looking at my own not knowing the nuts and bolts of, like again, legislative priorities that need to be pushed. And so, but that's not really what you do. You're, you set priorities and then the superintendent kind of figures out. And we do, I mean, our we do work with the legislature and with other governmental organizations. And of course, the number one thing is always funding, right? Mm-hmm. That we know that Oregon... Uh, with Measure 5, we we said, okay, the funding source we have for schools is no longer going to be the funding source for schools. Hope that works out for us. And sort of didn't do anything for about 30 years on school funding. So the Student Investment uh, Act is a, a new tax that passed last year that's trying to reinvest in education. So that's a piece of it. But a classic example is that 
you know, there's only so much money and only so many staff we can hire. And so it comes down to, do you hire more classroom teachers? Mm-hmm. And is it better to have smaller class sizes? And there are people who have done the research and firmly believe in smaller class sizes. Or do you hire a reading specialist who's really gifted at teaching reading, especially for struggling readers and really understands dyslexia and can work with all third, fourth, and fifth graders on reading? Or do you hire a school social worker to help students whose families are in crisis and offer them supports and their family, you know, support around food and other issues that they're dealing with? Or do you hire another um, administrator because you're seeing a lot of discipline issues and you know you, that teachers need more support so that things don't escalate? And so is that where you put the money? And again, each of those has lots and lots of good behind them and, you know, pros and cons. And so it becomes, which one do we choose? Or do we do we do half of this and half of that? And so it's, it's figuring out, you know, how do we invest in our schools so that we have the resources to support our kids? And I think, you know, we see the world now and, and we're seeing more childhood anxiety. We're seeing, um, you know, more parents under stress. And that is showing up in our school system. And it's how do we put care around students? Um, and one of the really interesting things is we're talking about Lincoln High School. And all of our high schools are supposed to have a health center. But we just built Grant High School. We have a health center in it. We can't get anybody to work at the health center. We haven't been able to find a contracting partner because Multnomah County only has so much, so many resources and they're focused more on East County where there's more of a lack of access. Mm -hmm. So do we build Lincoln High School with a health center? Do we build and spend millions on a space we know is going to be empty for the foreseeable future or do we convert that into something else? And those kind of decisions, those do end up being the board's decisions. Um, but advocating for, so we end up advocating for a legislative priority around healthcare because we know we have students who don't have access and that healthcare is really important and they need to be well so they can learn. So it, it, it comes down to, you know, more funding. But I also know that every institution and organization out there is asking for more funding. So it's yeah. making the compelling case of what specifically we need in education to really invest in our students so we can close the achievement gap and, and care for our students in the ways they need. Can I ask just, I, I, and again, not to change gears, but uh, you had mentioned uh, about the governance of the uh, your ability as a, as a school board member and as a school board, uh, and that how some people have wanted to use this as a stepping stone into other avenues of public service. Uh, and I know currently right now, one of the school board members gets a lot of ink as a potential candidate for higher office, you know, running for governor or something down the road. That's bl- news to me. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I'm not reading the right things. <laughs> well, I, well I, can I ask, do you believe that being a, a school board member, what types of, of leadership traits do you feel that either attract somebody to run in the first place or what leadership traits do you feel like you develop after your time serving on the board itself? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you have to be a little crazy to run for a public office, right? <laughs> like there's, and there's got to be some ego there to think I could lead or I can make a difference. Um, so that's part of it, right? And so that describes me. Um, I think, you know, for some folks, it is like this is a, a beginning path. Like you were talking about local democracy and how you show up and you can have influence and people who care and want to make communities better begin often at school board. Um, but some people s- try it as a testing ground to see what is public life like? What is public service like um, as an elected official? And, and does this work for me? Um, so I think there's all sorts of reasons people run. 
Um, I think everyone that's on the school board right now really cares about kids. I mean, I don't, I can't think of any one of my peers that isn't there because, um, I, that sentence came out wrong, but every <laughs> single person on the board is there because they value kids and they want to improve educational opportunities for our students. Some of them may think eventually they might go on to something else, but I think their, their major reason for running is, is care for kids and, and wanting to make PPS better for all students. I do think that, you know, we come, we're seven, it's, it's kind of like the Cubs, you know, if you're the coach of the Cubs, you just end up, I'm, you know, went to school in Chicago, so mm-hmm. became a Cubs fan and, and have a, you know, thankfully not as disappointed as I used to be as a Cubs fan <laughs> now that we've won the World Series. But, um, you know, the, we're seven random people that are elected and have to learn how to work together. Um, and each of the seven of us comes with huge differences in knowledge and, and, leadership skills and background. And so I think the biggest thing you learn is how to work with a diverse coalition of people who think differently. Um, and it's funny because I'm obviously like there's a couple of people on the board that I click with better, right? Like we'd be friends in real life kind mm-hmm. of thing. But I've had knockdown drag outs where they're totally wrong and I'm totally right <laughs> uh, with some of them. And and that's one of the things too for me being in the church, it's normally like more consensus building. Um, and so to have differences with people that you have an affinity with and agree with on a lot of things is always fascinating. And how to disagree and still be able to work together the next day. That's one of the things you learn, right? Like it's not personal and it's about sticking to your principles and what you really believe is best for kids and being able to have those conversations in healthy ways. Um, so I think those are the kind of skills you learn on school board, which does help someone be ready for higher office. Okay. Any any fun stories like that that you'd feel like talking about on mic? <laughs> I'm trying to think of any. I mean, you know, school board can get, we can get heated. Sometimes we're there to like, you know, it's like a seven hour meeting. So we're all punchy by the end. Um, <laughs> but I think, I mean, there's nobody on school board that I think is especially difficult or problematic. I think everyone's, you know, everyone's different and they show up in different ways. And that can be hard to work with because not everybody thinks exactly like me or does things exactly like me. Um, but thank goodness, <laughs> because that's what makes governance good is that we have these different perspectives and, and these tensions and these abilities to, to, to talk things through and disagree. Um, but I can't think, I don't have any good stories. I did, um, <laughs> jokingly, I did challenge one of the, uh, members to arm wrestle, Michelle DePoss. This was when we were back in Harvard for a board training last July. <laughs> and Michelle is, um, a little older than I am, right? And she kicked my ass. Like I didn't even, I put my arm up and she, and we were just joking around. It was like, I can't, we were arm wrestling about where to go for a beer with the whole group or something. Like it was something super silly. It wasn't even a real like disagreement. So I learned that Michelle can kick my ass. And so, yeah, I just did defer to Michelle because she's, she's a, she is fit. That lady is strong. Or I'm super weak. One of the two. <laughs> that's a pretty good, that's pretty good inside baseball. So I story. bought her a little wallet that said, um, arm wrestling master and gave that to her after <laughs> nice. Harvard so she can like hold that up as her prize. Yeah. Nice. She yeah. earned it. Yeah. And Julia, uh, Julia Brim Edwards loves, uh, gummy bears. Okay. Carbo gummy bears. So I got her some of those for a board retreat and she shared she was good. So listeners <laughs> send her some gummy bears the next time you're trying to talk. To Julia, yeah. So those are my inside. That's the inside scoops I've got for you. I like it. That's perfect. Well, I got to give a plug for the Multnomah County Republican Party and any Republicans listening. Show the up. Two or you heard three it or for, <laughs> You heard it here. Show Just up. Show up. Just show up. It makes such a difference. And the meetings are boring. And you want to, you know, claw your eyes out by the end of it. But 
it makes a difference. Dude, I'm the new chair, so the school board meetings are going to be so much better now, right? <laughs> We're talking about our meetings as <laughs> oh, your members. Meetings. Your yeah. meetings sound like they're going to be lit to we'll use see. the kids' party. Hey, our last meeting, my first as chair, we got done 48 minutes early. Wow. So <laughs> I think that was just because I overestimated the time it would take because I'm new at this, but we'll see. Well, I, well even our, I'm going to bring you out to the next MCRP meeting. <laughs> see if you can whip our chair into shape or I something. I mean, but really, like, I'm just a mom who showed up and cared about kids. And I think part of it, too, is like doing the, doing the scut work, doing the unattractive parts, mm-hmm. right? Being willing to serve. Like, the reason I ended up serving on big committees at PPS is because I spent the first year at Llewellyn like doing all the jobs no other volunteer wanted to do. And yeah. and that showed people they could trust me and I wasn't too good for anything. Um, and I would be willing to grab my boots and go down in the mud with the, <laughs> okay. the fifth yeah, graders. I don't will attest to that. Um, and Very so I think that's, I think sometimes we walk into the room and think, you know, I have two master's degrees and I'm smart and, you know, I should be in charge. But it, it, it takes that like walking in to learn and to serve. Mm-hmm. To show up with that attitude, I think, is what makes the difference, is that I'm here to be a public servant. I'm here to serve the good of the kids or the good of the community, um, and that, that that's what it takes. And when people see that, that's how you're showing up. You get, you know, it, the, there's opportunities there to really make a difference. More Third grade students switch from learning to read to reading to learn, and whatever the equivalent of third grade people involved in public <laughs> schools switch from doing the, the grunt work, the humans work, to... All of a sudden, I'm in a position where I understand how to actually I'm make a difference. I'm the chair of the league. school board. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, again, like if you show up, I mean, that was not the plan, right? Like this, it sort of feels sometimes like things lead and build on on each other in a way that I don't know. I don't always predict or can predict, but it's that showing up and seeing where am I needed. And then um, sometimes it leads to school board chair. <laughs> that's the way it goes well yeah. i would even say from the mcrp my own personal experience uh going to meetings for probably two years before i started getting really involved gave me so much credibility with the people who had been coming for 30 years that i didn't just show up and try i mean just just the you know people knew me and they would stand up for me even though i'm probably the one of the more liberal members of the multnomah county republicans but just having people who are way to the right of me sticking up for me and having my back when I um, get into a tiff with somebody else. But you didn't come in and say, like, I'm new, I'm younger, you all are dumb, I know how you should do it. Right. Well, I started a podcast to say that. (laughs) (laughs) But have you seen people who walk in like that? And they're not always wrong. They do often have good things to add. But I think walking in with some sort of a a spirit of humility is important. Yeah. Yeah. Who are you running? What uh, rep are you running for and who are you running against? House District 36. It's a vacant seat. My opponent is Lisa Reynolds. Okay. Dr. Reynolds, come on the pod. Yes. I Um, just was curious if I had endorsed your opponent. That's what I wanted to know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're probably better off. (laughs) You might actually have at this point. Well, you lost my endorsement when you broke my lights. I'm sorry. (laughs) To be fair... Lisa's never been here yet. She we don't not. know if she's going to break any lights. If Lisa or not. comes to my backyard and breaks lights, then we'll have <laughs> it'll be a fair fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we're coming up on the end of our time. Uh, we normally end our shows by asking a, a a a participant who his or her favorite Republican is. You sit in your seat in a nonpartisan role, and I, I'm not here to discuss your 
political affiliation necessarily. Uh, so I'd just be curious for who is your favorite leader? And if you feel like talking about who is your favorite Republican, you're welcome to answer that as well. Well, I was prepared for the favorite Republican question. So I'm going to, I'm going to share that. I, my favorite Republican is Mark Hatfield because I grew up in Oregon and my parents always lifted him up as like a model of a statesman and just someone who was thoughtful and led with his values. So he's my favorite Republican. But my favorite Republican story is about the time that I scared John McCain. <laughs> so I was in Washington, D.C., lobbying with a group of folks. And we were on the train from one of the Senate offices to go to uh, see Senator Merkley in his hideaway office in the Capitol building to have a meeting with him. And we pulled into the second office building subway stop. John McCain was on the platform and I went to University of Arizona. I was down with the Straight Talk Express. I was very <laughs> excited to see John McCain. I waved incredibly enthusiastically. <laughs> and Senator McCain just sort of like did the little like slowly moved his hand wave. And then uh, when the train stopped, got on the next car. So he did not have to be by us, looked straight ahead the whole time. And then when we pulled into the Capitol station, that man moved incredibly quickly for someone in his late 80s. <laughs> and I'm sure it was because I had terrified him with my overenthusiastic waving. So that is my favorite Republican story, the time I scared John McCain. And I took a total like stalker selfie of like the, his back and texted it to my husband to prove that I'd actually seen John McCain. So he had every reason to run away from me. Oh, so. that's perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I rest in peace, John McCain, of course. Yes. It sounds like I should have drafted you in fantasy football for a couple of years. Probably better than a lot of those Cardinals receivers. But that's perfect. Well, yeah, that that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, listeners, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Berlowski. Lauren Christensen is our producer. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts.